Hey, this is your host, Ryan French. What you're about to listen to is a candid conversation between me and my dad, Dr. Talmadge French, author of the best-selling books, Our God is One, and G.T. Haywood, Early Interracial Oneness Pentecostalism. This is probably one of the best discussions you will ever hear about church history, the oneness of God in church history, the burning of Michael Servetus by John Calvin, baptism in Jesus' name, and the existence of truth during the Dark Ages. Unfortunately, my producer, who happens to be me, had some microphone and editing malfunctions, so Sadly, the audio quality isn't nearly as good as the standard I like to keep for this program, so please give us some grace. However, the content is so good in this discussion, I decided to put it out anyway. I plan to do several more episodes with Dad, and we'll bring the quality up in those, I promise. Also, stick around all the way to the end, and I have a little Mother's Day-inspired sermon clip to close out the program. Thanks ever so much for listening and for sharing Apostolic Voice with your friends. God bless you. RyanAFrench.com Here you are, my dad, and you're the premier uh, apostolic Pentecostal oneness historian probably in the world. And uh, I have a unique and rare opportunity to be able to just drag you in here, kicking and screaming to talk about (laughs) church history with me. And so I'm really excited about it, and I hope we'll do it fairly regularly. But what I wanted to do today is kind of backtrack from from where most people want to start, which is, you know, the turn of the last century. And and we'll get to that. But there's kind of that long gap of of church history, certainly as as Pentecostals, that we don't discuss as often, maybe as other traditions or denominations do. And certainly the Dark Ages, which brings me to my very first topic that I wanted to have you weigh in on and it's it's also a question that i receive a lot from people through the website and at ryanafrench.com and it's basically this question and i'm going to ask it to you the way people ask it to me do you believe the church and by the church i mean uh, full truth people filled with the holy ghost baptized in jesus name do you believe the church existed throughout the dark ages and somewhere up until the outpourings of the Holy Ghost at the turn of the last century and, and kind of all basically from book of Acts until today? Do you believe that a remnant somewhere, even if it might have been just a small group, do you believe it existed? Okay, well, that's the question that uh, every apostolic is interested in mm-hmm. because and it's not just apostolics, but every Christian group has to believe or hope that their faith is uh, a Bible faith. 
whether it, you can prove a direct line all the way back or not. Right. And of course, Pentecostals are like all restorationists. They believe that Pentecost and speaking in tongues is biblical. Therefore, our experience is biblical. So what happened during those intervening years and so on. And then, then uh, secondarily, you have the issue of, uh, like for me, I was Trinitarian, but came to an understanding of oneness belief like millions of people have. And <clears throat> so I wanted to know how did my faith line up with uh, with the apostles? Is what I'm saying actually apostolic? And if so, what happened to it? Yeah. So um, th the short answer for me is yes, the church has always existed. But what's really important is, I mean, that's important to be able to say, uh, okay, my faith goes all the way back, but how does... How do I know that and how does it work itself out? And the truth of the matter is that um, church history itself is extremely complex because the way we interpret church history, there was a great deal of, of, of things going on all the way back to the time of the apostles. And so I've spent a better part of my, my faith, especially since I'm apostolic, looking at the historical record trying to understand where it, what what were people saying and what actually occurred back there and i would i'd summarize it like this so we can maybe go to the next step but that the fact of the matter is for a very long time the apostolic faith was definitely being preached in the early church but there came a time when it began to evolve into something else so that uh, after about the time of a Sibelius around 285, close right in there, it be, it started to be uh, come less and less where the truth was 100% believed in all the churches. There there came to be what I call a uh, an attack of intellectualism on the church, especially Greek intellectualism, and there was also a movement which was pretty well connected to Greek intellectualism. It was called Gnosticism, mm -hmm. where it was a movement that believed they were super spiritual. And these things have always been, they've been throughout church history. But when that began to take effect, then the Greek mind, the intellectual mind, began to try to square everything with Greek, with Philo and the Greek intellectualism. And the church began, they uh, begin to become more diverse so that you could have these really super smart guys out there at the periphery of the church that were saying, well, Jesus is not actually the one God. He's in the one God. And, and you begin somewhere in there around 200 and later, the beginnings of what we would think of as a, a Trinitarian way of thinking or a, a binitarian way of thinking. And eventually, by the time you get to the councils in 325 and so on, you've, you've got full-blown uh, Trinitarianism or uh, debates about Trinitarianism and who Jesus was and was he God or was he just in the Godhead? Well, these are things that the Bible doesn't even address because they're not biblical but they've become pretty powerful by the time you get to the councils. And by the time the Catholic Church is a, an issue, 
which is around 500, you've got, I mean, just think about uh, how long America's been here. And you talk about 500 years of Christianity. That's a lot of time. And by the end of it, you have truth and you have error in all throughout Christianity. Wouldn't you say it's kind of a merging of the secular and the sacred or maybe a maybe a merging of secular philosophy in the sacred? Right, it is. You could even throw government in there. Right. right, because see, when you get to the time of Constantine in 300 in the Council of Nicaea, there wouldn't have been a Nicaea had there not been a Constantine who had converted to Christianity. But many, many scholars will tell you that Constantine was not much of a Christian, but yet he had the greatest impact because... On there, Christianity. On Christianity. And so, yeah, can I would... Pause, can we pause for the low information? I, I, um, I know we have a lot of wonderful listeners out there who may not know who Constantine is. Could you just give a brief description? He was... Uh, he became the emperor. He became the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor. Right. So around, he was the... He was roughly around... 300. 300. Let's just say around 300. Around 300. Right. By then, the church was in full swing. Um, and when he became a Christian, then the Roman Empire became Christian, whether almost, they were Christian or not. Right, right. So it was a, a whole new era. So you right. from, in a lot of ways, you had the kind of the advent of Christian in name only. Well, it was definitely in Rome, uh, in, Ro in, in name only. But see, a lot of Christians today have a struggle with that because they want to believe that all of this error that's going on through Christianity and the diversity of Christianity was just part and parcel of it. They don't want to believe that at the very beginning there was a pristine church that held to a pristine doctrine. So how do you explain in the Bible them baptizing in Jesus' name and 300 years later they're advocating for Trinity baptism? Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Well, you go to Matthew 28 and 19 and try to prove that's the real baptism and, and they can't do it. So, But of course, wouldn't... As apostolics, we would say, I think, point to Jesus himself who warned that there would be wolves that would come in and there would be false doctrines and false Christs right. and all kinds of... Well, and Paul himself said it was happening right under his nose. Yes, yeah, right in the beginning, Judaizers. Right? But th those, uh, those, were, uh, those errors were, uh, of course, weren't Trinitarian. You don't see anything remotely Trinitarian until close to 200 certainly but someone i've had a lot of trinitarians say to me well oh my goodness well if it could happen if trinitarianism evolved by 200 it could have been 100 years earlier as though 100 years doesn't make a difference look at america right now how quickly it's gone from uh one type of a country almost into socialism and bordering on we're literally battling right now for the soul of america all within 25 years yeah, so think of, think of that. How it's quickly, amazing how one or two decades can the whole world can change. And, and if you add, uh, you know, a century to it. So in a century, you could you could have a church. For example, a Pentecostal group could start out holiness and 100 years later not even know what holiness is. Not even resemble what right. they began at. Because I was a part of a of a Pentecostal group that was strict holiness and then within... 25 years they dropped it and moved on to something else and today they they don't even know if they're pentecostal or not i was listening to a podcast the other day i, I can't remember his name the podcast is called apologia and they're trinitarians of course they can i think they consider themselves southern baptists of some kind 
and he was really attacking um not, actually the podcast is for the most part they're pretty interesting but out of nowhere he started attacking what he called modalists but of course he's talking about oneness people he wasn't attacking us because i think he was looking at a kind of a charismatic non-denominational kind of wishy-washy group that just they're not really oneness but they're not really trinitarian either they're just kind of whatever kind of a deal and and uh it was so interesting because he had spent the the beginning of the episode talking about sola scriptura and the and the uh the inerrancy of scripture which you know of course i'm i was on board with that and uh sounded like something i would say that you know we've got to hold you know we've got to pull all of our doctrine you got to hold everything up to the light of scripture which is language that i identify with mm -hmm. and but then when he started attacking modalism or the oneness and and basically rebuking this group very strongly for basically rejecting what he called the triune God or the triune Godhead. Mm -hmm. He never used the word Trinity, which I thought was interesting. He always used the, the word triune. Mm -hmm. um, he, instead of appealing to scripture, he never once appealed to scripture to do that. Mm -hmm. He appealed to church history. And I thought, how interesting. You just spent your 45 minutes basically saying, we've got to hold all of our beliefs up to the word of God. But then when you're, when you're defending your, your triune belief in the Godhead and a triune baptism and all of this, instead of going back to sola scriptura, you're going to church history and stopping right. there and you're not even going all the way back in church history you're right. you're going <laughs> well it, it's really enlightening that you're uh hearing this uh podcast and they're doing this because that's exactly what goes on with trinitarian thought yes now that doesn't mean that trinitarian scholars don't think they can prove the trinity in the bible they basically uh, think that they're proving the Trinity in the Bible through uh, hints. Uh, it's not taught there, but uh, how can you have a son if there's not a father? Yeah, you got Abraham. And yeah, you got, and so and you got the every, everything's through hints. The there's father, no, yeah. there's no direct teaching about it. You, you've got, you've got <clears throat> the the dove and Jesus. And I've and often voice. said, and this is this is the way oneness people think. If the Bible meant to teach a Trinity, it would say there is a Trinity. Now, well, then you would have the problem that Moses did not believe in a trinity, and the God of the Old Testament then, and the revealed God of the New Testament would be very different. So they would say, well, the son came. This is Trinitarian logic. So the son came, was born in, a, in, in on came to earth, and that proved there was a trinity before. So the logic of Trinitarianism theologically is not rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in what the church accepted over 300 years. And so the, they have several issues with it, of course, but the let's go back to this group then that says, well, we're going, we're going to condemn oneness people because of church history. Mm -hmm. That's basically what they're doing. They're saying that we have to trust the church. So whatever the church said in 300 or 500, no matter that it became Catholic. I was just going to say, why aren't we all Catholic then? Well, we would be if we followed that logic, but they're not following right. that logic. It's not really logic. The yet. only thing they're following logically in that period is 
the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't believe much else about it. And of course, the Catholic Church had lots of issues that even to this day that are so far from scripture. And oneness people are simply saying, of course, that, well, the Trinity is not found in scripture. Therefore, we don't embrace it. See, this guy went so far as to say, and I'm not even mentioning his name because it's not worth it to me, but I'm just wanting to think through the logic of how I view him, I guess, as maybe a a stand-in or a type of of a large group's way of thinking. He, you know, he was basically saying that if if you're not Trinitarian, and again, I thought it was fascinating. He never used the word Trinitarian or Trinity, but if you don't believe in the Triune Godhead, then you're not a Christian. You're a cult of Christianity. In fairness to him, I, I actually, I'm actually thankful that he believes what he believes and that he'll. He'll fight for it because I feel much the same way, but in reverse. I feel like, for example, I look at the Catholic Church as, as in some ways, a Christian cult as well, um, at, at least theologically. I don't mean that everyone in right, the Catholic right. Church is a, is a cult, but at least the leadership of it. But then there's also this, this secondary, I think that's a growing movement that other generations have have not seen like my generation is seeing. And that is a middle group that says, well, it doesn't matter if you're Trinitarian or oneness. You you could be because what people will say, and I know you've heard this, Dan, is, well, it's just semantics. It's just semantics. So you could, you could, that's why you have a lot of people and we're really rabbit trailing, but this is a great discussion. You have a lot of people who will say, well, how, how we'll kind of meet in the middle is we'll baptize people and we'll say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, whose name is Jesus. And then they baptize and then they feel like they're covering all their bases mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, when you speak of the Trinity, you were actually oneness. But uh, but then you have groups like this guy at Apologia who who considers that to be heresy and then you have groups like us on the complete other end of the spectrum as oneness apostolics mm-hmm. who consider that as heresy in the middle as well right how do we start to combat what i think of as the growing trend towards this kind of middle ground wishy-washy well, it doesn't matter that that is the exactly the most important question because yes. the what you're really describing is the state of the christian church today you have Christianity, let's call it orthodox thinking. All right. The, the, the fellow you're describing, whoever he is, is typical of people that are trying to hold on to orthodox thinking that there's only one way to, now he would be, uh, opposed to Catholicism. I'm, I'm just guessing. Yes. In, in some, in, in most of its varieties. Mm-hmm. But yet he, what he means by orthodox thinking is there has to be something that roots, that roots the church and that's Trinitarianism. Now, the fact of the matter is though that Christianity has moved away from that. They're no longer looking at Trinity or the way you look. I think of it as my term is usually modern liberalism. Christian liberalism no longer is worried about the Trinity. This has been going on for a very long time. We're talking 1700s all the way. So we're talking a very long time where Christians have begun to quit work. For example, the deity of Jesus. Well, this fellow you're talking about is going to fight for the deity of Jesus. 
So really what we're which seeing Which we have common here, ground there, which is interesting. We have common ground. It's weird because we wind up almost having common ground with people who are very opposed to some of our beliefs. Right, because his the, his starting point is the Trinity. You either start with the Trinity or you're nothing. That's what he says. Right. Liberalism has no starting point whatsoever. It's We think of it as sort of the squishy middle. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Catholics are very orthodox. They are basically unchanged. Now, there's lots of troubles in the Catholic Church, Certainly. but they're basically unchanged. They're still holding to uh, the idea of the Pope and all and and the universal nature of Catholicism and the Trinity. They've altered almost nothing regarding the Trinity, even though many Catholic scholars have come along and and uh, and wondered about the possibility of modal thinking and so on. And there's even been outpourings of the Holy Ghost in the Catholic Church. Is that correct? I oh, yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, in, yeah, I don't mean absolutely. in the church as a whole, but in individual churches and priests. Yeah, there's been a major outpouring uh, in all denominations, and people uh, have accepted speaking in tongues. It's it's somewhat fading at the moment. Right. seeing then is that there's a uh, there are you know the oneness movement has become and this is what this fellow is reacting to the oneness movement is a if you look at various groups that have diverged from Trinitarian thinking you could think of the squishy middle and the liberals as diverging from Trinitarian thinking but it's not wholesale abandonment of Trinitarianism no but so you look at the groups out there that say I just don't think the Trinity is the right answer well the largest group of those are oneness people because we're talking somewhere between 30 and 50 million living believers right now yeah. that stand strong for oneness theology all right so th these folks are trying to hold on to a complete 100% Trinity is the answer. Well, the Catholic Church does it, and they're doing it, and uh, we might call like the orthodox conservative element are doing it. Is there anybody else who holds on, uh, and I know there is, but we could just, for people who might be thinking with us in this discussion, aside from the Catholic Church, aside from maybe the Southern Baptists, are the Presbyterians still holding on to Trinitarianism? As well, the... they're split. See, so Lutherans are split uh, over lots of issues. <laughs> but a lot of, so you have a lot of liberals who would say, talk about the Trinity, but they don't believe in the Trinity mm -hmm. in the way that we would think of as Orthodox. Right. They're not quite sure of Jesus. For example, the deity of Christ is extremely uh, squishy in the middle. They just simply, there's a lot of... Can you explain uh, to people who may not understand what you mean by the deity of Christ? That Jesus is actually God. That he was actually God. There's That's some, right. So maybe mention a, uh, a, a popular 
I'll use the word heresy or false doctrine that people are falling into about the deity of Jesus, that he was not God. He was, he was man. He was not, not God. And well, the, 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 so there's the, several the liberals, I, so several liberal Christians, like, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to, uh, the 1700s with people like Schleiermacher who thought that you could never you could never be certain that Jesus was divine he wasn't necessarily divine what he did was from god so yeah. it basically became what they so the the heresy would be what conservatives today would refer to as the fatherhood of god that god was just a father the son was not divine so you would end up with a uh, a one God, but Jesus wasn't part of a Godhead. So what would you call that doctrine? That well, I'm, I'm going to, I call it liberalism or it, theologically it was this idea of the fatherhood of God. Now it's, so it's how, how is that different from divine flesh? Oh, it's divine totally, flesh. yeah, there's no relationship. Okay. Divine flesh is that Jesus was not only God, but that his flesh was divine. That his flesh was his actual flesh. Yeah, it wasn't actual flesh. It was divine something. Yes. Which is a which, heresy. Which denies, which denies the humanity. Well, it, it sacrifices the real humanity right. of Christ. So that's a different, uh, that's a totally different error, which is not just something that we see in Pentecostalism. It's something that you see all the way back to the time of Luther. This idea that there was, for example, when you, that all comes from the idea that you, the Catholics said you could eat the actual flesh. The Eucharist. That when you take the Eucharist, you put it into your mouth, it becomes this flesh. So mm -hmm. in that came all kinds of error, which of course is one of the problems with, with Catholic thinking, just one of the things. But you see, the fellow you're talking about is attempting to hold on to the absolute trinity of god whether the bible ever taught it or not because what they're going to do is extrapolate it back mm. now in other words say even though the bible doesn't explicitly teach it it's there and that's what they believe though they never said it mm. now that's of course rather crazy mm -hmm. to say they believe something they never said they believed and never even used the word trinity yeah i was going to say this 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 is kind of how our relationship for those that don't know i i uh, very privileged to serve with dad for, uh, you know, going on nine, 10 years now here at, on the South side of Atlanta. And, uh, the way our, the way we work in our church is, uh, dad's the, the genius. And I'm always kind of the, uh, everyday weird word guy, but, uh, speaking of the word weird, use a completely non-theological terminology. Don't you think it's just, and I mean this, I don't mean this in an ugly, disrespectful way, just logically, isn't it weird to, to go to church history, to pull the doctrine of the Trinity, but then ignore church history, to leave the Catholic church, and then try to go back to the Bible? Don't, just logically, isn't that flawed? It's flawed in, yes. in, in so many ways. So uh, one one way to think of it, if we could not get too complex, is that they look back into church history and try to find the Trinity. And of course, it did develop in the hundreds and hundreds of years so that you ended up with uh, basically just one church that was Catholic. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean there was just one church, because we started out this discussion discussion asking the question, did the oneness movement go all the way back? And I said, well, 
the the answer is yes it does go all the way back but the question is how does it do that well and i my answer is always the oneness movement goes all the way back to the old testament and the you right, know, right. But, but you know that that's that's but, a simplistic so, answer so if you're looking what oneness people are uh, need to be doing is finding out how it went all the way back because you're not you're not going to have the enemies of the oneness of god looking for answers for how the oneness was embraced i'm quite convinced by church history that there there were tons of oneness people at nicaea yes now okay so we're going to jump into that in just a second but i I keep feeling the need to backtrack for for people who aren't i know we have people who have these kind of discussions and read these kind of things all the time but i know there's some some wonderful people out there maybe this is the first time they've really used some of these terms so let me go all the way back to kind of the beginning and you use the word restorationists can you just give a brief definition of what a restorationist is okay and you know we're restorationists why is that many christians that are not pentecostal are restorationists and almost all pentecostals are restorationists a restorationist is someone who views christian faith as something that they lost yes and they have to for example luther or well uh, lutherans are not strictly speaking restorationists but there were many restorationists but martin luther himself well martin luther saw himself as restoring to the church what he viewed as catholicism's uh having lost and so he they, so you would end up with lutheranism now lutheran Luther, lutherans themselves did not view themselves as strictly restorationists at, like pentecostals do pentecostals view themselves as all right people are not baptizing correctly well let's say for example the catholic church baptizes infants Yes. So do Methodists. So do yes. lots of people. But restorationist minded people say we have to go back to the Bible to find our answer. Yes. All right. And Pentecostals say that because for not only the way you baptize, but people speaking in tongues. Well, did did speaking in tongues stop? No. But did the church as a whole stop preaching speaking in tongues? Obviously they did. Certainly not practiced in the era of the Catholic dominance and so on. And so now, does that mean it? Uh, nobody was speaking in tongues? No, I suspect a lot of people were speaking in tongues, but it was not something you got away with because Catholicism basically choked out. You know, there was a whole lot of uh, rooting out people that didn't believe what they wanted you to believe. Yeah, that tags in perfectly to where I wanted to go next, which is kind of a twofold question. I wanted you to maybe introduce Michael Servetus to people who maybe have never heard of him. Oh, yeah. Or for people who have heard of him, you might could give some information they may not know. But also, tagging into that, at what point did the Catholic Church, or the historical church is maybe a term I like to use, at what point did it become militant in the sense that, you know, they forced you to believe with the sword? You know, you've got the Crusades and you've got... Uh, the Catholic Church, you've yeah. got the church burning people at the stake, you've right, got, right. so I mean, I, I often say to people, well, of course in history, if, 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 if you were oneness, and if you were speaking in tongues, you probably were going to be underground, because 
You were under. You know, because oh, otherwise you might be burned at the stake. You might be, you might have your okay. tongue cut out. So when did that start? When, when did the church become violent, which is to me is evil, of course. Can you imagine if the church was trying to be militant today, how we'd be viewed? Now, it's interesting because the, the, the group that you were describing at the beginning that is trying to hold on to strict Trinitarianism and condemning oneness people um, would probably say that when Calvin burned Servetus at the stake, that that was okay because he, how dare him deny something that Calvin believed was 100% theologically correct. So, so for people who don't know, John Calvin was a reformer of Protestantism who had Servetus because he was oneness, had him burned at the stake. So what era are we talking about here? That roughly? was that was in the 1500s. In the 1500s. So yeah. you're about 1,500 or so past... Uh, so we're talking 500 years ago. Yeah. So think of it. The church evolved in 500 years at the beginning from an apostolic Bible group. By 500 years later, you have basically them talking about is Mary the mother of God and is there a pope that rules the church? None of that's in the Bible. And yet that's where the church is. And Trinitarianism is pretty rampant in Christianity by then. And, Cal but, and Calvin, even today... You have Calvinism and, and probably, I think, one of the most dangerous, deadly, false doctrines that still permeates a lot of quote-unquote Christian thinking is what I call once saved, always saved, or the, the doctrine of eternal security where, you know, no matter what you do, you can't be plucked from the hand of God. You can, you right. can, you can be an adulterer, but if you've said your prayer and all that, then you're, you know, or that you're also, you've got some people are divinely destined for hell and some people are divinely destined right. for heaven because God, you know, chose. All of this is Calvinism or stint roots from Calvinism. Right. And so you have this massive segment of, of Christianity that puts Calvin on this huge pedestal. And yet he was a murderer in my mind. I consider him wicked. Well, well, are you willing to say, we've uh, talked about this privately, are you willing to say that Calvin was a wicked maniac? I, mean, I know he was a genius in, in a certain sense, but... Oh, I, I don't think anyone that burns people alive is anything short of a, of a, a wicked person. Okay, so... But, to but what I was referring to a moment ago, uh, I've, I've been very outspoken that Calvin's behavior was uh, unbelievable. And... He was no, it turns out that here he was the, one of the most outspoken critics of Catholicism in the 1500s. And yet he used the same tactics. Yes. That was to kill the people he opposed. Kill the opposition. Now I had a professor, because I'm oneness, uh, but I haven't always been. And I had a professor at a Christian university that I attended that told me that you have to expect you're going to be burned alive if you oppose the theological thinking. And I said, so you're you're saying that killing Christians is okay. And he said, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm trying to say you have to understand that we have to forgive Calvin. And I said, no, I cannot forgive Calvin. Nobody can forgive Calvin but God. Right. He murdered a man for no reason. So in other words, using that was the Catholic notion. And at, by the same token, Catholics forgive their past for killing who knows how many thousands of people. I mean, in horrific ways, 
Just, just think of the Inquisition. But to simplify this, though, what actually occurred, so you got 500 years of the early church where there was things happening where the faith and speaking in tongues and baptism in Jesus' name was being was being a becoming a minority and people were pushing it back. It being and, diluted. The, and I call it, in, and I don't get this from oneness people, I get this from conservatives who now are nervous about using the term, the dark ages, where they begin to move into a period of time where one group began to take control of Christianity and everybody, like you couldn't, for example, at the time of the Reformation, which was 1500s and, and the 100 years or 200 years before that, you could be executed for owning a Bible. Yes. For printing a Bible because mm -hmm. the Catholic Church said nobody could control the Bible but them. Amazing stories of people who Tyndale. would get a Bible and go hide in their closet yeah. to be able to... And Wycliffe and yeah. these men. So the, a lot of people were, were really moving back into what I'm thinking of as a new dark age. It had been for a very long time. It's probably the era just before the coming of the Lord, but what, what actually occurred is that in that era where, for example, you could be executed and were executed by either a Catholic or a Protestant if you immerse people in baptism. In baptism. If you just took a person out and baptized them in a river and buried them and they found out about it and got caught you, you could be executed. So and then in modern history, I, I don't think it's as bad now as it was, but you know, theologically speaking, there was a time where you were, I guess, culturally burned at the stake or intellectually burned at the you were you were blacklisted, you were mm -hmm. boycotted. Mm -hmm. If if you if you deviated from uh at, at least Trinitarian orthodoxy, it's always amazing to me how you have all these denominations, the the Baptists, the Catholics and the uh, and of course, the Baptist, Baptists have all kinds of variations of, of denominations, and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Church of God. You have all of these, and they're all united by Trinitarianism. And if you walk in that orthodoxy, it's like you're okay no matter what else you do. I've always thought that was strange mm -hmm. and very telling because it's the one doctrine that they, well, it's one of the major doctrines that they have that is non-biblical and totally historical in context. And yet that's what unites them. And then they put everyone else in this camp of being anti-orthodoxy, when in reality, we're really the orthodox ones. It's very strange. I wanted to just say something before I go back. You, you were talking about people being burned at the stake just for owning a Bible in the Dark Ages, where all of this time in church history, where the Catholic Church controlled the narrative of Scripture because only they had access to the Bible. So... You were having to completely trust a priest and the Pope and his emissaries to tell you what the Bible said via their interpretation. Mm -hmm. And and of course, we know now that the Catholic Church has moved far beyond the Bible and, and the Pope can speak for God as God. Right. And his word becomes, in their way of thinking, just as an errant as the word of God. So that creates all it, kinds it of issues is just as an in their minds. And so you have all of these years where people were hungering and then, and then men, this is a whole nother discussion. I'd love to have men like Tyndale, who you mentioned and Wycliffe, who mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, they gave their lives to be able to translate the word of God into a language that the commoner could could read and understand without having to know Latin or Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And they did all of this knowing that, that they were going to be persecuted and, and probably killed at some point. Mm -hmm. And then they distributed these precious Bibles to people, often handwritten, and, and people were secretly getting them. I mean, some of these stories that I've read where, it, I mean, it'll just make you weep where mm -hmm. people get get a Bible and, and they're having to hide it and they're trying to read it for themselves. And so you have these kind of this imposed dark age of spiritual ignorance where people, God bless them, they, they're they walking in darkness, but they were being, it was really the blind leading the blind and the blind had no access to light because the scripture was being was being completely controlled. But today, I think, and this is the point I wanted to get at is, you you said it's like we're going back to that but this is different today it's like we have a self-imposed dark age where where people have more access to the bible than ever in the history of the world i mean even as i'm old enough now to remember a time when if you wanted to read the bible you were going to have to go to a bookstore somewhere and, and you were gonna to have to purchase a Bible for yourself. If, if you wanted one that's gonna last, you're gonna to have to spend a good bit of money, or, or you're gonna, you could get a cheap gift Bible, that, but you, know, you were gonna to have to go purchase something and then keep it with you and read it. But now people via smartphones, which just it seems like smartphones have been with us since the beginning of time, but they haven't, it's a fairly recent phenomenon. And the internet and computers, you can go to Bible Gateway right now and you can, read the Bible online, day or night, completely free, any translation you want, even, even horrific ones, but you have access to it. And yet, statistics tell us that people are reading the Bible less and less and less. So it's almost as if we have this overwhelming access to it, and now people are indifferent to it. It's, it's not that there's a a class of people above us keeping us from the Word of God. It's that people are keeping right. themselves from that it. That is true. Well, let's go, let's go back to something that we were talking about, and that is, what does a man like Michael Servetus represent yes. in uh, the 1500s? Okay, so, because the initial question has been, do I believe that the oneness apostolic Pentecostal faith of repenting and baptizing in the name of Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, living holy, did that go all the way back to the early church, all those centuries? So Servetus represents a person who not only died for the very message that I'm preaching right now, but he represents an entire generation of people that believed it. Mm -hmm. Because even though church history is difficult to trace, 
because you know the victors wipe out the um, a great deal of the writings and the yeah they get to write the, the history yeah, and and plus if you know your children are going to die if they find out who you are and where you are you keep that a secret mm -hmm. so you have these you know evidences so so I'm going to give a, a just a quick answer now that we're in the context of Michael Servetus who died brutally by the way I mean, of course, you couldn't be burned at the stake without it being brutal, but the entire episode was brutal. He was a man that when he was 14 knew seven languages. I mean, he is one of the most brilliant men of the Reformation. And not just a theologian. And he had gone to uh, he had gone to Calvin because he wanted so desperately to talk to him about the need to get back to Scripture. And they executed him. So all the... Uh, all of the people that held to oneness views throughout the centuries, we cannot excavate all of their writings and all we know about lots of them, but we don't know what all of them believe because they're lost to history. Yeah, they're not in the clouds. See? Somewhere. And yet, if you say that to someone who's the victor who says, well, I'm a Trinitarian and I, and bless God all the way back, it goes all the way back. Mm. And you say, well, yeah, but you killed all of our people. How are we supposed to be able to then, uh, to uh, mount a historical ability? We don't have the ability to dig out their graves and find all their writings, but we know they were there because when we trace Servetus, we can find the group that he came from and why he held to oneness views goes all the way back to his childhood. And it's difficult to do, but it can be done. We know that in, for example, Laredo, Spain, where he was born, that they were there was a group they're baptizing in Jesus' name all the way back. So, And what that did for me was it didn't just demonstrate that Servetus uh, uh, believed in the oneness of God, but that he applied it to his understanding of baptism. In other words, he didn't baptize in a Trinity formula because he came from a group that didn't baptize in a Trinity formula. And that this is the way you almost have to do history uh, through, throughout the entire period. Servetus was a genius. Yes he, yes, he was. Don't you think some of Calvin's venom towards Servetus was jealousy, not just, not just you know, theologically rooted or... Right. or... No, there's no doubt it was jealousy. There was a whole lot of jealousy. Yeah, the Servetus as a man, not as a scholar, had a lot of faults, um, and one of them was this. I mean, he's he, the great scourge on, on on Calvin was the burning of a Protestant. He burned. He he became the martyr that uh, shocked the world. There's there's not a long history of Protestants burning one another, right? And but Servetus, who was oneness, is the one that they that basically shaped the is understanding. Is Servetus the only individual that we know of that Calvin burned, or did was that common practice for him to have people executed? No, it was it was not common practice for him to execute people. No. You mentioned um, so. Well, I want to say this since we're right there good. that it's it's. Um, difficult to understand why a Trinitarian be, would be so opposed to a oneness thinking, which could, because modalism 
uh, espouses 100% the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Absolutely. And as one God, totally, not in a Trinitarian sense, but absolutely one God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. It, they're all one, actually one. And yet they're so opposed to it that the hatred for it would literally lead a man to to burn another Isn't that man strange alive. That, I find it mind-boggling. To me, it's, to me, it just... I'm just going to make a very... Uh, controversial statement in certain, maybe not to, to us, but to many Christians, it's demonic. It's rooted in a demonic. Well, if you you mean to kill someone, well, trinitarianism itself oh, to me itself. is rooted is is uh, is <laughs> well, demonically that, uh, inspired. I mean, when you have a group of people perverting the word of God and then turning into a a, a movement that's murdering people. To me, that that is evidence of, of it being a demonically inspired theology, mm -hmm. and for that to be the the hill that that quote unquote Christians would be willing to uh, kill people on throughout history, and then today for people to be willing to intellectually and culturally kill people mm -hmm. uh, to be to use extreme language. Boycott. Well, it's it's extreme uh, to uh, burn someone at the stake, and then you also have the context that now, after the oneness movement's been around here for over a hundred years now, so today the trend is what liberalism is doing to say, I don't believe in all that holiness and baptism in Jesus' name and and modalism, but. I accept it as they're genuine Christians. That's the trend. Yes. So your friend, the fellow you were listening to, he's in the minority because today he's, re he's rejecting that. That he's trend rejecting that trend acceptance of us that says, "Hey, I can, I can accept," because the Pentecostal Church today, the the oneness movement within it is massive. And even Trinitarian Pentecostals are more and more embraced. For example, I'm in, uh, because I have a PhD and I'm involved in lots of things in Pentecostalism, I'm involved with Trinitarians that I totally oppose their theological stance. And yet I'm in academic societies with them trying to get the oneness message and my beliefs and my writings out there. And they're willing to allow that. They're not burning me at the stake, right? But not, yet, not anymore. They're not anymore. That that's the trend. Now that doesn't mean there aren't tons of people that uh, that hold to a trinitarianism. Uh, I guess we'd have to wait till the Lord comes to figure out what's in people's hearts. But the sad thing is that Calvin didn't wait. He just went ahead and burned burned oneness people. That's what he did. Let's just try to think through. Maybe we have someone listening who, and I'm sure we do or will. Maybe they are Trinitarian, or maybe maybe they're not sure, and they're they're trying to think through. And I've had many sincere people, many sincere good Christians, who what I I say this maybe a condescending way, and I don't mean to be condescending, but what I think of as low information Christians, they don't really they don't know anything about church history. It's amazing how many people you meet now they don't know anything about. It church history they really don't know their bible they might know like you know for god so loved the world they might know john three sixteen right. or something like that but they don't really know scripture that's right and so they're they're trying to very simplistically and sincerely which by the way you know if you will 
approach God simplistically and sincerely, and you're truly doing that with a, a, a heart to seek after God, you know, I believe the Bible says Jesus himself said, seek and you shall find, you know, knock and the door will be open. So that's a beautiful thing. I'm not criticizing that. But you're asking, maybe someone's asking themselves, and I even know apostolics who ask themselves this question. What is the difference theologically and, and how does it affect our salvation? I always come back to baptism, but if I'm a Trinitarian, if I'm oneness, what does it matter to God? Why would God care if how I view? And I know that's a, a big, broad, crazy, strange right. question loaded with minefields, but what does it matter? That's really what the middle is asking. What does it matter? Does it ultimately doesn't matter if, if you're Trinitarian or if you're oneness or it but, must it must matter. Let's keep it in the context of our conversation right okay. there. If if it mattered enough to a Trinitarian to kill a man who didn't believe it, yes, then there is an enormous difference. In my mind, having been a Trinitarian, and of course I get a whole lot of oneness people who were trinitarian and there's lots of them mm -hmm. they get a lot of flack because trinitarians believe that as you said a moment ago that if you think that jesus is god but he's not a second person in the godhead mm -hmm. then you're not even going to heaven that's how strong they are now uh, i as well i believe that trinitarianism and oneness doctrine are the same as light and darkness because Trinitarianism is not a biblical message. When you say that Jesus is not God himself, mm -hmm. but he's part of God himself, that's not a biblical message. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the totality. He's not part of the Godhead. He is the Godhead. Yes. So in my mind, when in the, him dwelleth all the forces yeah, of the so Godhead. So the Trinitarianism was the, was the Godhead of a of a Christianity that had lost its way. The oneness doctrine is the Godhead of the apostles. So yes. it makes all the difference. Now, which is why we call right. ourselves apostolic. Right. And so they change baptism from, from Jesus name baptism to Trinity baptism. Well, that in itself is, is, is heresy beyond. Yes. So this comprehension. is, this is, this is where I always go. Right because it's the easiest one to go to it, the, the the greatest flaw or or the greatest evil of trinitarianism is that it now becomes a changing of the mode the salvific mode of baptism where now you are baptizing people in titles instead of in the name mm -hmm. and we know that the name is is uh is really is really where the efficacy of of, of baptism comes into play. It, it is the it's not the water. It can't be the water. The Bible tells us that over and over again. We're supposed to be baptized in water, but it's the calling of the name that where the power comes from. So you have you have Trinitarianism that now affects the way you're baptized. Now that directly impacts your salvation, and then then also in the way that you pray. Because I I talk to people all the time who are Trinitarian, and they'll say. Or, or I've talked to people who used to be Trinitarian and now they're oneness and they say, I don't know how to pray because it, should I be praying to the Father? Should I be praying to the Son? Should I be praying to the So now you're not doing, uh, you're not fulfilling scripture and saying whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. 
So you have all kinds of the way you pray, the way you, the way you uh, are baptized. It affects all of it mm -hmm. in a strange way. I, I, I agree. Yeah. We're deep here. We, we're tiptoeing into church history, but we're currently in a very deep theological question when we are thinking about how a Trinitarian thought and oneness thought are different. But that's precisely what the church, the, the church was dealing with going all the way back. Right, because we're trying, now what we've done is we've, we've pulled ourselves for a moment out of just a theological, uh, intellectual, conversation into a real practical world how does this theology practically affect individuals mm -hmm. and and it the tragedy of any false doctrine just like any any error whether it's religious or not error always falsehood always has practical real world implications right. that wind up hurting everyday human beings right. who are seeking after god this right. is the the great tragedy of of error and false doctrine of course jesus again jesus warned us this would happen i'm always amazed when people act shocked that this could happen because jesus you know was right. so clear he couldn't have possibly been more clear you're going to be persecuted you're going to be right. uh you know i think as americans though we're just so spoiled because we've had such a long history now of freedom although i think that that's in jeopardy we're we may not get to enjoy that at least not the way that we have uh, for for right. much at, at the rate we're going, there what's on the horizon only God knows. Only it's certainly not good. Only God knows. Only God's plan is good. The rest is is looking darker and more and more dark as we go. It's it's very very scary. Very quickly, and and I know we've gone close to an hour here, so I, and I appreciate your time, Dad. I really do. We've already talked about Michael Servetus, and we've done it. I mean, we could just spend an hour talk, introducing right. Servetus to people, and I, I feel bad saying what we've said without clarifying more for people. I hope uh, my hope is maybe this will spark people's interest, and some people will go dig deeper. But you mentioned Sibelius as well, a different mm -hmm. era. But in church history, we do know of of some oneness or at least modalists who were. Uh, speaking of these things, can you mention uh, just some of the common ones that we know of, aside from Sibelius, and give just like the quick bullet point information about who those people, who those people might be? Well, there's uh, there are dozens of oneness, uh, what scholars sometimes call modalists, and the word modalist means that instead of there being multiple persons of God, there are God acting in different modes. So you call that a modalist. And the trend in modern theology is to think of God in modes. And so Karl Barth, for example, spoke of modalism in favorably. Um, but he, of course, still maintained he believed in a trinity. But 
So all the way back to church history. Is it correct to call ourselves modalists? Are we well? I I have always said there's nothing wrong with it, but some oneness people are uncomfortable, especially current leaders in the modern oneness movement. Uh, I think most oneness people are uncomfortable with that because they don't know where it came from, yeah, or they think it came from the enemy or something. The fact of the matter is, <clears throat> modalism is a way of describing anyone who holds to a, a Godhead in which the Father, Son, and the Spirit are in some way modal. And oneness beliefs hold to that, that the, the Jesus and the Father were just modal differences, th that the way in which God revealed himself in the Son was not a different person than the God who revealed himself in the Spirit. That's what oneness is. So to me to say modalism is fine. It's just that someone as people today are worried that there are forms of modalism we disagree with. Well, there's forms of oneness people I disagree with. Right. So I don't have a problem with it, but some do. You know, that's just the way it is. And uh, so I, I don't have, I think for Trinitarians to say modalist is helpful because they then realize you're talking about church history. Those we typically think of them as modalists because the term oneness is a fairly recent term. It's a term that came to be very popular among former Trinitarians that had become modalists in their view of who Jesus was. They saw it as a revelation, a divine revelation, that Jesus was the Father in his human form, that in the mode of humanity, and therefore the Son was not another person. It was the Father revealing himself. And this is exactly what Servetus taught. It's exactly what Sibelius taught. And so... Is um, it overly simplistic theologically? Because I always go to those overly simplistic. But is it overly simplistic theologically for me and many others who have done it to use the analogy that you're, I'm a father and a son? Because um, people will say, "How can you be the father and the son?" And I and I often say to people, "Well, I'm a father and a son. You, I can I yes. can be multiple things at once, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make me multiple people. But in the end, my name I have a name right. that is what I use legally to, for legal okay. authority. And, and, and we can see that we, we're moving now again into a very deeply theological way of understanding, which is important. It's absolutely essential. But it's you know it's difficult for some people. Like for example, Trinitarianism is really not you you cannot comprehend Trinitarianism. Right, it's not logical because you would have a a father and a son who are both eternal and they're both gods. They're both gods within a godhead. That's simply a logical. And co-equal. How can you be? And they're co-equal. How can you? Right. How in the so, world can you both be all powerful? Right. So, but the the same true is true here when we're talking about trying to explain modalism. Does it mean? that I was a father and I was a son. And of course it is true of God. God was both father and son. How did that occur? Well, it ha he was at the same time that he was a father, he also be he also became the son. That he didn't quit being the father when he became the son. So any modalism that held to that view I've just described and so this becomes deeply theological. Well, he's the father to... because he, you know, he overshadowed Mary. That's right. The father it. and the spirit. So the spirit is the father's spirit. The son is the father's humanity. You see, so God becomes the son. God be is working in the spirit. They're not separate persons as though. Uh, well, as... and even Jesus, you know, my spirit, I'll 
you know, you have this kind of interchangeable language where it come from my father, but then I'm sending it. So even Jesus was kind of using interchangeable language that to me, if I was Trinitarian, would be extremely confusing because how could Jesus right. be sending his spirit? You know, how, how right. is that even possible with if they're not the, the same thing? All right. So what we're doing is we're explaining how the oneness view differs from the Trinitarian view. And so when oneness people view Jesus, they view Jesus as being uh, as being the revelation of the Father. He is the Father in his human form. He came to earth in Jesus Christ. Yeah, manifest so, in the flesh. Yes, yeah, so he says, when, for example, we'll just give one example, that this is very important to oneness theology, that Jesus said, uh, it's not my works I'm doing. Yeah. I'm doing the works of the Father. Yeah. All right. So uh, it, Trinitarianism can't account for that. Yeah, now, do, they claim they can. They claim they can. Because they say the, the Son laid down his deity or something like that. Almost but, every um, almost every intellectual intellectually honest Trinitarian that I've ever talked to or heard, at some point <laughs> will get to a place where they say, I believe in the Trinity, but it's inexplicable. It's inexplicable. I, I believe in it, but it's a great mystery that we'll never fully understand. Right. It's and the mystery of the Trinity. It's the yeah. great mystery. How does the average Trinitarian deal with Jesus saying something like, you know, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Right. Well, I, my contention is they can't. Now, they they will they appear to be answering it. They'll give answers, but you know, you can give answers that are non-answers and that's what Trinitarians have to do. When you get to the point to where you're talking about bib the biblical Jesus, he is not saying I'm another person from the father. He's not saying that, Yeah. but they would then argue, well, well, said the opposite how could that. you be, how could he be the same person? This is where Trinitarian, tr Trinitarianism goes. But when you're now, now we're going back to John 14, where Jesus said, if you've seen me, mm -hmm. well, you know, that's not the question you ask. You didn't ask that when you asked. Uh, yeah, you did. If you've mm -hmm. seen me, you've seen the yeah, father. Yeah, his response okay, to Philip was, right. if you've seen me, you know, how can you ask me, right. show so, us the father? So, so a Trinitarian would have to go back to John 10, four chapters earlier, where Jesus said, I and the father are one. See, and then they would have to argue that one there doesn't mean one. I was just going to say to me yeah, that 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 to me, how could you even go to John ten? So, because but they have to they have to attempt to build a multiple person God that's still one God, which of course that in itself is illogical. Yes, it's illogical. Now, let, this brings me to uh, something I wanted to mention and define for people. We've used the word modalist, but then there's another word people use for oneness people, oneness apostolics, is uh, uh, monotheism or monotheistic. Mm -hmm. So just simple mono meaning one, one God. So we Christians historic, I mean, in the Old Testament, I mean, the define one of the great defining characteristics of the Old Testament and and the great separator that God gave for the Israelites was the fact that they were a monotheistic people. They're <laughs> Israel, the Lord, our God is one. In a world at the time where Egypt and they're 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 worshiping thousands of gods, and they have a god for everything: the sun, the moon, the stars, the grass, the bugs. And then you have all of these other pagan nations that are worshiping multiple gods. And then and then God commands. He says, you know, there is there's no other god before me. Thou shalt have no other god before me. Do Trinitarians now? I I'll just 
put my belief out there, mm-hmm. no matter how um, offensive it might be. I believe that Trinitarians, if you follow their doctrine logically, are polytheists, meaning that they do believe, whether they claim it or not, because most of them don't, but they do essentially wind up worshiping three gods, which to me is an absolute affront to God himself in the sense that God over and over and over commands us to understand that there is one God and that we're to serve him alone. And when you separate him into three persons or beings, now you have done exactly what God, essentially in my mind, what Satan did was he came in and he was able to convolute quote unquote Christianity to the point that now you have idolatry in the church, but the, the, the idol that winds up being worshiped is supposedly the true God. But I know that most Trinitarians would not. Am I correct in saying most Trinitarians would never claim to be polytheistic? Is that correct? Absolutely not. They would, they would claim to be monotheistic, right? They do claim to be, and they yes. uh, and technically they are monotheists. Now, how? Okay, because explain they, to us how they, that's the possible. reason they they can claim it is that they're they make every effort from Nicaea till now to say that the Trinity itself is one God but existing somehow mysteriously beyond any human comprehension is that the three that are, let's call them the three divines Mm -hmm. that are in there. Let's not say persons because um, uh, let's just not say persons for now Um, that they're still one. There's there. It's, it's so mysterious. It's incomprehensible. And, and of course what they're actually doing is having to be oneness. (laughs) <laughs> they have right. to start out being oneness yeah. in order to end up with three separate persons. And they have to go backwards. They think they have to end up with three separate persons because there was a father, son, and a spirit. So this takes me back, and I keep coming to this because it's so incomprehensible to me. So if if you're claiming to be uh, monotheistic and you alter, because most Trinitarians, <laughs> when you pin them down, they want to say, well, there's one God. There is one. I mean, I, I have this all the time. You even hear it in music, in Christian music, popular Christian music written by Trinitarians, wow. where, I mean, you can have a song written by a Trinitarian called One God. I mean, there is one right now. Mm-hmm. It's a great song. Yeah. And I wonder, I often ask myself, how can they write a song like that? Because, and then reject oneness, a, a oneness uh, individual, reject their. So why? If they're doing that, why would there be such a mm-hmm. John? We could go to John Calvin, for example. If he's starting with and saying I'm monotheistic, why in the world would he attack someone and be angry towards someone who is monotheistic in every sense of the word? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It d- makes sense to me. It, it's complicated to the average person. I, I, you, it, we're sitting here trying to explain why a deeply theological, basically leader of one of the largest movements in Christianity, murdered another Christian. That's what we're trying to explain. Yeah, which is impossible. Okay, so that's impossible. Let's let's come to now. Let's come to the present. All right, right now, the unnamed guy that I can't think of his name on the podcast. Apology. Mm-hmm. How could he spend so much time, and people like him? Why would they find it in their hearts so necessary to condemn truly monotheistic people when yet he himself can 
claims to be monotheistic. How does that jive in their are you able to so much so get in their it sounds mind? like so much so this is becoming I mean very, very few people today take the position I mean fewer and fewer. He may could name millions, but right. very few people today it's less that would less. look at oneness people and say, You're you're damned to hell it's not like it was because the, of your belief. Not right. like it was at the turn of the last right. century. No, things have changed so drastically. And they would consider that, you know, unfortunate because we ought to be condemning. We ought to do just what Calvin did. And and he, this gentleman has to be careful because what he's wrestling with is an, a, such an, a fear of another monotheist that that upholds. Now, if you are violating the Jesus himself and saying he's not God, the, then you would then have the basis on which to begin to condemn, truly condemn someone. But he believes that his Trinitarian understanding of the oneness of God, of the one God, let's say it that way, is Mm -hmm. so true that my denying it or not believing or accepting it. By the way, there's tons and tons of Trinitarians who do not believe the concepts of of the Trinity. In their minds, they can't accept that. They somehow just believe that it's just one God. They cannot make this three distinction that Trinitarians want you to do. So among their own people, they do it more and more. But uh, Which is why I think if you're not a theologian, if someone's listening who's not a, th- a theologian or a philosopher, you're just you know a good person who loves the Lord. And we have to try to help average individuals. When I say average, I don't mean that in the sense that, uh, I mean, they may be very above average, but I mean average in the sense of their understanding and exposure to the Bible and theology. Help them understand there are real life spiritual consequences when you embrace the false doctrine of the Trinity. And we have to to try to show why that is Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense of baptism, in the sense of how you pray, in the sense of how you're viewing God. And does God care how you view him? Well, of course he does, because he spent, I mean, the vast majority of the Bible is God very clearly saying to people, it matters what you believe about me, and it matters how you worship me. It matters how you serve me. It's God's not, God doesn't have kind of the universal uh, philosophical mindset that that the world has embraced today, where everything's fine, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're, Well, we have basically the modern cultural mindset is, it doesn't matter at all what anybody believes. Even even conservative Christians today, among some of them, there is this notion that, well, in the end, it's just all going to be just fine. But the consequences for believing that, look where we are in a culture. The culture is complete. A, a Christian America today is in dire straits. Yeah, and the question is, did did the church begin that, or did the, did the world have that and it trickle into the church as kind of uni- you know ecumenical universalistic way mm-hmm. of thinking but that's almost like the chicken and yeah the egg yeah which came first the yeah. chicken or the egg it's it's really almost impossible to know i, I kind of want to close out with this thought that it's tempting i think for oneness people you know the the oneness movement and the the tongue talking movement and we won't even throw holiness in that's a whole nother deal but Historically, and, and when I say historically, I, I don't mean going back to Servetus. I mean since the turn of the last century, mm-hmm. was very we were very persecuted. A lot of, lot of persecution, mm-hmm. physical persecution, but even probably greater was the 
cultural persecution, the rejection, the being cast out from society, being marginalized. When you talk to the elders, and there are still elders today who, uh, right here in our church, we have Sister Cole, whose who's father founded Tupelo Children's Mansion. Mm-hmm. And the stories of him being taken out and beaten within an inch of his life and the scars on his back and yes. all of the things that people went through, horrific yes. things that we can't even imagine. Right. And as horrible as that was, and none of us would want to experience that, in many ways, it it galvanized the movement. The church is always, I mean, even when you go back to the New Testament, the church has always galvanized and grown in persecution. And the church seems to always struggle in in times of ease and in times of... I think it's one of the reasons why you see, for example, this is something we'll talk about hopefully soon, you know, your research in, in the oneness movement in China, where in China you were shocked when you were writing our, and, and studying for the book, Our God is One, which was first your thesis for your master's at Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. And you studied how the preachers and the pastors, how they were, I mean, unbelievable physical persecution. Not just being thrown, I mean, to be thrown in jail would have almost been a mercy, but the things that they went through beyond just being thrown in jail, the horrific physical things that happened to them in China. And even today there's persecution there. And yet the church, the oneness apostolic church, just revival that has been mostly underground that has just exploded in that nation. You see that repeated in different places around the world where this there's this great massive movement and outpouring of the Holy Ghost and uh, in nations where there's great persecution and then you come to America where we're really fairly stagnant right now and I think a lot of that is because of the ease so there's a danger it's like we don't want to we've spent a lot of, I've spent a lot of time drawing you into a conversation about why do you know the hardcore Trinitarians reject the modalists and the, or the mono, monotheists, but really, in some ways, I would rather deal with them because at least we can have a discussion where we all believe things than the squishy middle. Because the squishy middle, the danger of that, where and we get comfortable with the squishy middle, or I, I don't, but many apostolics do because they're nice to us. Does that make sense? Exactly. They're nice to us, yeah. you know. They. They're, and, you know, of course, we're nice to them, but they're nice to us in the sense that they, they might say, well, you know, you're you're saved, you know, you're fine. And, uh, you know, I am, too, of course. And there's really not a major difference. You know, what you believe is great and what they believe is great. And, you know, you know, we're just let's all be in this together. Well, that's very dangerous Yeah, to be pulled into the idea that everybody's just fine is the temptation it's very appealing of a a church it is especially for people who want to avoid persecution at all costs because or preserve their ease or preserve their ease that's yes exactly preserve their ease or preserve their maybe we might could say preserve their uh financial gain it it reminds me popularity it, it it just seems to insert itself in your discussion here that the last days of Revelation mm-hmm. were described to be Laodicean, yes. where they simply say, I have need of nothing. And it, it, this, whenever you're in that 
era of time, we are. There are always、uh, tremendous dangers, and you're describing. This yeah,、right、and I think that I do believe that's exactly where we are. Is they're kind of the Laodicean. I know commercial breaks are frustrating, but I do want to pause and let you know you can financially support this apostolic Pentecostal programming by giving as little as ninety nine cents a month. You can give four ninety nine a month, or even as much as nine ninety nine per month, by going to www.anchor.fm/apostolicvoice/support. Also, please consider giving this podcast five stars and a quick review on iTunes. It really helps us out in the search engines people use to find podcasts. When you give us a like and a review, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your support. God bless. And people will ask me sometimes,、uh, why is it that God would? Show favoritism to one nation. Why is it that God would just take one nation and choose it among all the rest? But in reality, that's a misunderstanding of what God did. God did not choose a nation. God chose a righteous man named Abraham. God found a man who was faithful, a man who had faith, a man who was righteous, and He gave Abraham a promise. He said, "I'm going to bless your seed. Your children are going to rise up, and they're going to be a great nation." And there was a prophecy that happened there that we didn't really understand until the New Testament unfolded. But He said, "Out of your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed." Abraham, not only is your seed Going to be a great nation, but your seed is going to bless all the nations of the world. This was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This was a prophecy of how Jesus would change the world. And it's important to understand that God still chooses righteous people today. Let me just pause and preach to a father and a mother and remind you that God will bless your children if you will. Be faithful in the eyes of the Lord.